everyone, this is Lauren. And this is Anastasia. Welcome to Wait to Panic, a podcast where two friends take turns trying to scare one another shitless. This week, it's Anastasia's turn. And I'm probably not going to scare you shitless, but I will horrify you. Oh, yay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, before we get into horror, do we want to do happy things? Yeah, let's let's do that. Uh, You go first. Uh, So my happy this week, I am excited because my aunt and uncle are going to come and visit my parents for a bit. So I haven't seen them in about a year. Um, A little surprised that they're traveling, but I am excited to see them. I'm I'm doing quarantining before and after to make sure I feel safe about it. But I am excited to see them. Double bonus that this is my uncle who's the jeweler. So I also get to look at shiny things while he's here. I like it. Yeah. Very excited. I'm ready to have an engagement right now. I don't blame you. <laughs> so let's see. My happy. Right now, my happy is B. Bubba is B. <laughs> I swear I was an English. I was an English major. B. Bees are wonderful. <laughs> um, <laughs> English is. is her first language. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes. Uh, no, I've had four days off, and it has been absolutely lovely. And the weather has cooperated for once. It hasn't been, like, what it's been, where it's gorgeous all week, and then on the weekend, it's garbage. So it's actually been nice weather all weekend. Mm-hmm. That's an awesome one. It's I, too, have had four days off, and it's been freaking fantastic. And, and now I don't want to go. <laughs> Story of our life. Rory and I were talking yesterday, and he made the comment of, you just need a job where you only work one day a week. I'm like, yeah, that'd be perfect. Can we make that happen? Podcast, maybe? I don't know. But, like, that's the appropriate schedule for my needs. One day. One day we will be loved. Oh, my back. Oh, no. Not the back. We're still huddling in our closets, so it's been fun chilling in here. (laughs) You know, it's not so bad as long as... I, I haven't managed it so far, but as long as I remember not to bring hot tea with me, um, I like tea. Yeah, cold water is key when you're huddling in a closet. It helps a lot. Tea is delicious. Maybe try iced tea. I could. I've been really wanting, I'm trying to figure out what is the exact ratios are for like Starbucks green tea lemonade because that is like my summer go-to beverage, and it's delicious, and it's refreshing, and I need to figure it out because that will then become my podcast drink every single week. I approve. So what are we talking about today? Tell me a spookums. This week, I am talking about the People's Temple Agricultural Project, which sounds really boring, but it's also known as Jonestown. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's quite a doozy of a story and for, for reference, usually like it takes me a day or in my usual case, like a night to do my research. And this has taken me like the better part of a week to piece all this together. Oh my gosh, it's huge. So we're not going to stay under an hour. I can pretty much guarantee that unless I, like, blast through this and we have pretty minimal commentary. (laughs) 
Um, oh, that's basically not going to happen with Jonestown and the horrifyingness of it. That's okay. Listeners get a super sewed. Yeah, they do. Um, so, yeah, we'll we'll try to not derail, but I mean, if if you're with us, it's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's part of our charm, right? Well, we'll call it that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna start in the beginning and. I'll do my best to stick us on a linear track and get us to the Kool-Aid, and we'll go from there. Yes. Um, Okay. So, yeah, little background. The People's Temple was formed initially in 1955 in Indianapolis, Indiana. The temple was founded on the practice of apostolic socialism, and while the beliefs did fall more in line with the teachings of the biblical church and the Christian revival movements more than they did Marxism, they still did believe that, quote, those who remained drugged with the opiate of religion had to be brought to enlightenment through socialism. Yeah, so we're we're starting off strong. So, unsurprisingly, Jonestown was named for its founder, which was, or who was, James Warren Jones, also known as Jim Jones. He was an American preacher, civil rights activist, and faith healer who turned into a cult leader and conspired with his inner circle to um, enact what would later be one of the biggest mass casualties since up until 9-11, really. So, yeah, he's he's a great guy. Yep. So, <laughs> yeah. Real so, bad Reverend dude. Jones Real was bad. ordained in 1957 by the Independent Assemblies of God and in 1964 by the Disciples of Christ. He was born on May 13th, 1931, in the rural, rural, I hate that word, of Crete, Indiana. It just, oh, it's it just terrible. slurs all together. It's terrible. Okay. Um, yes. I mean, do you remember the rural juror? Yes, I do. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he was born in Crete, Indiana, 1931, to James Thurman Jones, who was a World War I veteran. And Lynetta Putman, um, he was of Irish and Welsh descent, and he later claimed partial Cherokee ancestry through his mother, but his maternal second cousin said that wasn't true. (laughs) So, lies right off the bat. Cool, lying about your indigenous relations. That's, that's... Really, let's be honest, it was honestly the smallest of the lies that he did, so... Yeah. Still not not good, no. Still Um, real bad. So economic difficulties during the Great Depression led to the fam led the family to Lynn, Indiana in nineteen thirty four, where he grew up in a shack without plumbing. Despite this, he was a voracious reader who studied Stalin, Marx, Mao, Gandhi, and Hitler. Because why not? He developed an intense interest in religion, as noted by, you know, later becoming a ordained reverend. And he, he apparently, yeah. Can I just say, anyone that studies Hitler should not be allowed to be in any position yeah. that's trying to yeah, care not. for people. Dear God. Well, I never said he cared for them well, okay? <laughs> Clearly. Um so yeah, he he had some some hard times making friends. Childhood acquaintances recalled him as a quote really weird kid who was obsessed with religion and death. Um, they, uh, yeah, 
And, you know, as a first, first solid red flag, these same acquaintances uh, alleged that he frequently would hold funerals for small animals on his parents' property <gasps> and that he'd stabbed a cat to death. <gasps> so, re- yeah, red flags. Ooh. Red flags everywhere. Starting off strong with the animal abuse and it's just going to go further <sighs> through the shitter that he didn't get to grow up with. Yeah, right. Um, but, you know, it probably did come to help him later, this uh, lack of amenities um, that he grew up with. Okay. Yeah, we'll get into it. Don't worry. We'll okay. get there. Interesting. So, growing up, Jones and one of his childhood friends that apparently wasn't weirded out by him, um, both claimed that his father was associated with the Ku Klux Klan, uh, which had become Sugar. very, I know, it was very popular at that time in Depression-era Indiana. Again, not a huge surprise. Um, Jones recounted how he and his father argued on the issue of race and how he didn't speak to his father for many, many years after he refused to allow one of Jones's African-American friends into the house. So, yeah. So Jones's how parents... Did he get African... How did he get African-American friends when he studied Hitler? Well... I don't this know. This is an interesting person. Maybe okay. maybe Hitler was later in like teenage years. Maybe. That's that's clearly like one of his very few redeeming stories though. Like <laughs> yeah. Dad, yeah. you're wrong. Racial injustice. Yeah. Interesting. He was very big on racial injustice and like that that was one of I guess the brighter parts of him. Huh. But yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, so his parents eventually separated, and he moved with his mother to Richmond, Indiana. In December 1948, he graduated from Richmond High School early with honors, and he would go on to marry nurse Marceline Baldwin in 1949, where the two would relocate to Bloomington, Indiana. They really loved Indiana. Um, He attended Indiana University, Bloomington, where he was so impressed with a speech that he heard by Eleanor Roosevelt about the plight of African Americans, and this really helped shape more of his beliefs. Okay. Um, in 1951, they relocated to Indianapolis, where Jones attended Indiana University for two more years and then took night classes at Butler University to earn a degree in secondary education in 1961. So, that is... The background on Jim Jones. And to get into the People's Temple portion of it. So in the early 1960s, Jones visited Guyana, a country in the northern mainland of South America, which at the time was still a British colony. Um, He stopped there on his way to establishing what would be a fairly short-lived temple mission in Brazil. But Guyana would stick in his brain for quite a while. So then... Particular reasons why? Um, We'll get into it. But, cool. Gotcha. Yep, he, he had reasons why he liked it. And yeah, they were kind of shitty ones. But I I did find it interesting. Like, I, I didn't know much about Jonestown other up until, you know, this last week and I really started reading about it. And for some reason, I thought it happened on U.S. soil and not in South America. Oh, I did yeah. too. Yeah. Nope. Huh. 
No. Because, spoiler, it happened in Guyana. You know, I bet you I'm thinking of Waco. You are, because uh, we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> Connection. <laughs> yep. So, in 1965, after he had already um, found the People's Temple, uh, he actually received quite a, a bit of criticism in Indiana for what was seen at the time, uh, radical integrationist views, because, you know, that was still during segregation, and they pretty much accepted anyone and everyone and believed that should just be a thing, which... Again, the you know, only again, positive... The- <laughs> the one positive in all of this is, you know, everyone is welcome. Um, to a bad situation, but <laughs> equally. Yes, everyone was welcome equally. Um, yeah, so they got a lot of uh, criticism for that view. And so they pretty much packed up, moved to Redwood Valley in California. Then in the 1970s, the temple opened other branches in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and San Francisco would later be where the headquarters were eventually relocated. Um, They pretty much kind of abandoned Los Angeles and just moved to San Fran. Um, Yep, so the headquarters had been moved to San Francisco, and the temple became increasingly more politically involved, and they actually saw pretty high levels of approval from local governments, like... Hmm. A surprising amount. The temple was actually instrumental in the mayoral election victory of George Marscone. Marscone? Marscone. I don't know if you pronounce the E with a little flair or not, but... I, I don't even know who this person is. <laughs> yeah. So well, whatever you say is right in my mind. <laughs> and this was 1975, and he was, to answer your question, the 37th mayor of San Francisco from January of 1976 until November 1978, when he was assassinated. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did not did not make it long. But he appointed Jones as the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission. And that was all they said about it. So, so they got someone yeah. elected and got some power. Yep. And it was interesting because compared to, you know, most other cult leaders that like right off the bat shun the politicians and whatnot uh jones actually had a pretty substantial amount of public support and like a weird amount and he'd actually met with quite a few several um quite a few several that was terrible uh high level politicians he ended up meeting with vice presidential candidate walter mondale First Lady Rosalind Carter, and at a testimonial dinner for Jones, I'm not sure what that was, but there there was quite the dinner held for him. He met California Governor Jerry Brown, Lieutenant Governor Mervyn Damali, and California Assemblyman Willie Brown. So, like, I mean, the fact that he had a political dinner for himself in the first place, like, whoa, yeah. dude, he was definitely involved. Yeah, so. Surprisingly involved with politics uh, to quite a, a high degree. And so, as as all good things must end, um, despite how well every se- everything seemed to be going in California, the temple ended up being subject to several pretty critical newspaper articles in the fall of 1973. 
Uh, all of them were written by Lester Kinsolving. Uh, eight temple members actually defected around that same time, and with the fear that the temple could be in danger, Jones and Tim Stone, which you'll want to remember that name because he shows up a lot, uh, who okay. was attorney. Yep, he was an attorney for the temple. They got together and prepared a immediate action contingency plan that allowed them to, yeah, to Ooh. respond to any police or media crackdown. So now we're, we're starting to get a little into the crazy and it's going to amp up pretty quick. So the plan included several options such as fleeing to Canada, which Canada is too good for you, um, or a Caribbean missionary outpost such as Barbados or Trinidad. Um, okay, these are all too good for them. Yeah, no kidding. In the event of his arrest, uh, I was reading through the, you can actually, I will include links, but you can access the unclassified FBI files from the investigation. <gasps> yeah. Which were... They They were eye-opening. <laughs> um, but... Um, Temple members said that Jones had instructed them to make plans to kidnap public officials and hold them hostage until he was released. Um, they, Jeez. Yeah. So these same members were like, you know, he told us to do this, but we never actually made formal plans of who and how and where and what. Um, it's just something he wanted us to do, and it never got past that. But still. Yeah. Aggressive. So for the Caribbean outpost, Guyana was chosen after the temple directors researched the country's economic and extradition treaties with the U.S. Because they're planning ahead. Yep. Oh, my God. And in October of 1973, the directors passed a resolution to establish a mission there. So part of the reason why Guyana was chosen, uh, as stated by a formal temple, former temple member, Tim Carter which I think he comes up later, too, I'm pretty sure, uh, was because the temple's view of a perceived dominance of racism, and they're not wrong, um, and multinational corporations in the U.S. government. So they didn't like the racism. They didn't like the corporations in the U.S. I mean, again, they aren't wrong, but... But they did... <laughs> they Just because they have some no, silver linings does not doesn't make them, make them good. Them good. Uh, yeah. Really, it doesn't make them good. That's part of the problem with, like, bad guys, really, is like, hey, this is how cult leaders get you to join. They're not 100% right. bad. They're just bad enough, and then they amp it up well, once and they got the you thing in. with any villain-type character is they believe in their own mind that they're right. Like, yep. yeah. So, yeah, that's why they picked Guyana, and they decided that it, since it was a English-speaking socialist country with a predominantly indig indigenous population where the government actually included fairly prominent African leaders, they decided, you know, that's a good place because they felt that it would allow African-American temple members to live a peaceful life there. Again, silver lining. <laughs> yeah, like that sounds so good. <laughs> it does. It does. And oh, why'd they have to mess it up? They did. I just know what's coming. <laughs> I'm prepared. Yep. Mm, yep. 
So later, the Guyanese Prime Minister, Forbes Burnham, would state that Jones may have wanted to use cooperative, use the cooperative as a basis of the establishment of socialism, and maybe his idea of setting up a commune meshed with that. Jones also did believe that because in his view, Guyana was small, poor, and independent enough that he would be able to easily obtain influence and political protection. <sighs> the story is just so sad. Like, the more I read, it's, ugh. Yep. Well, yeah, because they they front-loaded with all the good shit. Yeah. Like, and then just rip, like rip the Band-Aid off. We like political regimes that take care of our people. We want to go where everyone has equality. Yeah. And... Yep, giant steaming pile on it. Yep. So, in 1974, after traveling to an area of northwest Guyana with Guyanese officials, Jones and the temple negotiated a lease of over 3,800 acres of land in the jungle located 150 miles west of Georgetown, which was the capital of Guyana. Jeez. Yeah, big, big chunk of land. The lease was approved in 1976 and retroactively um, enacted to begin in 1974. Uh, what does that do for him? It, so they didn't get around to actually approving the lease for two years after people got there. So they just said, oh, oh your lease. okay. You know, we approved it now, but we're going to make it so it started in 74. Just like, hey, you've been there a while. We're yeah. going to make sure you don't get in trouble for the time you work there. Yeah. So the, I blah, blah, blah. the site was isolated and had pretty pretty low fertility in the soil, even, even by Guyana standards, which is going to come into play later. Uh, the nearest body of water was seven miles away, and you had to go through some pretty <gasps> horrendous roads to get there. And Jonestown's location wasn't far from this disputed border with Venezuela, and Guyanese officials were hoping that the presence of American citizens would deter a military incursion. So, Well, that's just, don't put a human <sighs> buffer. Yeah, you're not wrong, but I mean, I can't, I can't blame Dumb them dumbs. because they wanted to protect themselves and they thought that was a pretty easy and simple way to do it but yeah. i mean and to be fair it did work but yeah so the temple was granted permission from guyanese officials to import some items duty free and bribes would later go to pay for the safeguard of the shipment of firearms and drugs through customs into guyana so red flags are drugs like <laughs> pharmaceuticals or no <laughs> No. Okay, 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 okay. I mean, okay, some okay, of them okay. were pharmaceutical, but cool. not for good uses. Yeah. Mm. So 500 temple members began working on the construction of Jonestown while the temple began to amp up their encouragement of other members migrating there. He Jones sold the town as a socialist paradise and a sanctuary for media scrutiny. Scrutiny. I can't talk. <laughs> It's fine. Jones like it. actually negotiated an agreement with Guyanese officials that would allow for the mass migration of temple members. And he pretty much did this by showing off an envelope that he claimed contained $500,000 of the group's money that he would be reinvesting into Guyana. So, yeah, pretty substantial Your chunk goodness. of change, especially for that time. 
still substantial for now. <sighs> what? That was... What year was that? Um, like 1974 to 76. I just, I need to know. Apparently that would be approximately $2.6 million in today's dollars. How much would $26 million be? Uh, uh <laughs> $135 million. Okay, well. I know that seems like a weirdly specific number to ask about, but you'll see. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> uh, yeah. So he flashed his supposed envelope of cash, and the government of Ghana was like, cool, all right, let him in. Uh, the immigration procedures that they had in place were very much compromised in order to inhibit the departure of those who wanted to defect later, uh, as well as curtailed the visas of those who would oppose the temple. So real hard to get in or out. Sounds like it's easy to get in, hard to get out. Well, it's easy to get in if you're there with the temple. Oh. Real hard to get in if you want to investigate them. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So to further sell it, Jones stated that Jonestown was a benevolent communist community where they were the purest communists there were. And Marceline, his wife, described the town as dedicated to live for socialism, total economic and racial and social equality, living communally. Which, if that doesn't so, sound like a cult, I don't know what does. I, I mean, what that sounds like is that she is being held against her will. Uh, well, I mean, no. No, she was she was right up there with him. At least everything I could find, there was there was no I want to leaves from her. So a true partnership. Yep, ride or die. So by 1977, Jones and several hundred Temple members had moved to Jonestown in order to escape increasing pressure from San Francisco media investigations. There was a lot of scandal that was going on at the time. And Jones fled the very same editor from New West Magazine, read him an article that was pending from Marshall, Marshall Kilduff that detailed allegations of abuse by former Temple members, which no one was surprised by. Yeah, no. So by 1978, Jonestown had become overpopulated with occupancy at just under 900 occupants. Okay, that seems like a very small occupancy to be overpopulated by. Yeah, but if you think of, I mean, scaled to the amount of land that they had, it's small, but they were not self-sustaining mm, in, gotcha. in any way, shape, or form. Um. Again, we'll, we'll get into that very quickly. So the idyllic life that the temple members had been promised, that, that got shattered pretty quickly. Uh, when Jones arrived, life began to change and very quickly. Buildings quickly fell into disrepair and weeds threatened to overtake the fields. For the first several months, members would work six days a week for 12-hour days, usually from 6.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. By 1978, Jones's health had begun to deteriorate, and Marceline, again his wife, began to oversee more of the daily Jonestown operations. Uh, to her credit, the the work week through her was reduced to five hour or five days of eight hours long, and when work was done for the day, members would then attend several hours of activities around pavilion that included classes on socialism. 
better. It gets worse. The temple had also begun gradually subjecting members to mind control behavior, or mind control and behavior modification techniques that were used by North Korea and Mao Zedong in China. So school study and nighttime lectures for the adults turned to Jones's discussion about revolution and enemies with lessons focused on Soviet alliances. Jones was real big on Soviet Russia at the time, like real into it. Um, Stop trying to make Soviet Russia happen, Jones. It's not going to happen. It didn't. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, they, they were real focused on the Soviet alliances Jones's crises and the purported missionary or mercenaries that were sent by Tim Stone, the attorney, uh, who had defected from the temple and turned against the group by this point. Go Tim Stone! Go Tim Stone! Go Tim Stone! Yeah. Uh, yeah, no kidding. So discussions that were held, um, they focused around current events. But they often took the form of Jones interrogating individual followers about the implications and subtext of a given news item. And he would deliver lengthy and pretty confusing monologues on how to, quote, read certain events. The recordings that they have of commune meetings showed how livid and frustrated Jones would get when anyone didn't find the films interesting or if they didn't understand the message he was placing on it. So, yeah, if if you didn't find it fascinating like he did, he did not like that. Oh, Jones. Oh, Jones. You're boring. <laughs> he, you know, he was a very, um, what do you call it when it's like an inspirational speaker that like draws people? Charismatic? Yes. There we go. Words. <laughs> like he, he had That's what a, I'm here for. He had a way of really drawing people in, which most cult leaders do. Uh, Nothing in the way of film or recorded TV. Uh, All their TVs and movies were shown on the commune's basically closed-circuit system. Um, No matter how innocuous or politically neutral something might be seen, uh, you couldn't watch any of that without a temple staff member present to interpret the meaning for the viewers. So we can safely say independent thought was not welcome here. Okay, Hunger Games. Yeah, So we've got a pretty solid, probably overly solid start to beliefs of Jones and his temple. So we're going to get into what Jonestown daily life was like. Uh, It sucked. Really sucked. Um, End of story. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) I mean, like, the soil, like I said, was very poor, even by Guyana's standards. So Jonestown never really stood a chance of being self-sufficient like they wanted. Uh, They had to import just about everything, including, like, wheat and basic necessities. Uh, Yeah. Temple members would live in small communal houses. Uh, Some had walls that were woven from the truly palm, which just looks like a palm tree to me, but smaller. And their meals reportedly consisted of nothing more on some days than rice, beans, and greens. And they only had the occasional, I thought it was funny, meat, sauce, and eggs. Like, I'm, I'm not sure how, why sauce had to fit into there, but occasionally they got some sauce on their food, I guess. 
and yeah. add some flavor, I guess. I mean, the beans, rice, and greens kind of sounds like my normal yeah, diet, right. but it's just because the other things don't jive well with my yep. body. And, I mean, I grudgingly give him this credit, but I suppose to his credit, Jones also lived in a crummy little communal house, and albeit he had less people living in that house with him than others did. Uh, he still lived in a shitty little shack, basically. Again, what he grew up in. Uh, mm-hmm. But, Nostalgia. yeah, you know, the good old days. Um, and so he lived in this little shitty house, even though he had access. Like, the group supposedly had $26 million. And... Oh, that's where our $135 yep. million dollars comes yep. in. So even despite that, he still lived in crappy, crappy housing, just like the rest of them. Uh, although his house did reportedly have a small refrigerator that contained at times eggs, meat, fruit, salads, and soft drinks. Okay, that's a lot better than what the other <laughs> people are eating. not wrong. Uh, but unsurprisingly, medical problems such as severe diarrhea and high fevers started to uh, strike down about half the community in February of 1978. And as you can imagine... Um, they probably did not have the greatest um, waste management system. So I imagine how gross that probably was. And so unsurprisingly, given everything else medical that's going on, Jones's health also significantly declined while he was there. In 1978, Jones was informed of a possible lung infection upon which he announced to all of his followers. Oh. Yeah, it was basically just a ploy to foster sympathy and strengthen support within the community, uh, which worked. I mean, his people that stayed did love him, like, a freaky amount. So Jones was said to be using injectable Valium quaaludes. I don't know what that is. Uh, Oh, quaaludes are, like, old drugs that knock you on your ass oh okay thank you tv i guess that sounds fun uh as well as stimulants and barbiturates so they have audio tapes from 1978 meetings within jonestown that uh would pretty pretty strongly attest to his declining physical condition with the commune leader complaining of high blood pressure small strokes uh, he lost anywhere from 20 to 30 pounds in the last two weeks of Jonestown before, you know, Ooh. before the Kool-Aid struck. Although he was still noticed overweight on the final day, so his fridge was pretty well stocked. It's all those. <laughs> it's all those soft drinks. They'll stick with you. Damn those soft drinks. Uh, he also claimed temporary blindness and convulsions, and in early November, while he was ill in his cabin... He had grotesque swelling of the extremities, which is always just unfortunate sounding. He often would mention his chronic insomnia, where he said he would go three or four days without any rest, which I don't know about you, but I start to like hear and hallucinate some real weird stuff if I don't sleep for even two days. Oh, yeah. Like, honestly, it just doesn't really happen. Like, I will fall asleep wherever I am. Mm-hmm. I, 
not to brag, but I can sleep basically everywhere. When I was a kid, I once fell asleep at a monster truck rally. That's impressive. Right? Like I can sleep everywhere. It's great. That is, yeah, that genuinely impressive. Like, I, I was that party pooper that put myself to bed at parties kind of thing. So, eh. as a child, I will say, as a child. I mean, I also did that, so. Not not that my parents had a lot of people over, but. Oh, no, this was even at other people's houses. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'd just find a corner and curl up. My parents weren't ready to leave, so I went to sleep. Well, you know, that's, that's not a bad mm-hmm. habit. Sleep's important. (laughs) It is. But Jones wasn't getting a whole lot of it. So, during meetings and his public addresses, his, what they said, once sharp speaking voice would often sound slurred. The words would run together or were tripped over. Just me talking in general. And he would occasionally not finish his sentences, even when reading typed reports over the commune's PA. Uh, So, Reiterman was surprised by the severe deterioration of Jones's health when he saw them in Jonestown in November 17, 1978. He had been covering Jones for 18 months for the examiner, and he thought it was shocking to see his glazed eyes and festering paranoia face-to-face to realize that nearly a thousand lives, ours included, were in his hands. So I'm assuming that they were staying there in Jonestown? So, Jonestown contained no official prison or form of capital punishments, but they did have some some forms of punishments that were, were used, uh, mostly against members that were considered to have serious disciplinary problems. I, they didn't really say what those, those were, I, but they did go into uh, what the punishments were, and I didn't like them. So, some of their methods would include imprisonment in a six foot by four foot wide, three foot high foot, three yeah blah blah blah. So six <gasps> by four by three plywood box, and they would force children to spend a night at the bottom of a well, <gasps> sometimes upside down, and this torture hole, as it was referred to, uh along with beatings, became the subject of rumor among the local Guyanese population. And for some members who would attempt to escape, drugs such as Thorazine, sodium pentothal, chloral hydrate, Demerol, and Valium were administered in an extended care unit. Armed guards would patrol the area day and night to enforce the rules of Jonestown. So if you had children, if you were unlucky enough to have children... They were generally surrendered to communal care and at times were only allowed to see their biological parents for a very brief time at night. Jones was called father or dad by both adults and children, which is creepy. Ew. Uh, yeah. Oh, I don't didn't like, like that. that. And over, that was a lot of kids, over 33 infants were born at the nursery there. And that was just like a one or two year period. Oh, I can only imagine how bad giving birth. Oh, yeah. Giving birth would be there. Like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it wasn't, I won't say it wasn't so bad, but maybe it wasn't so bad because 
I, I don't know what kind of a nurse Marceline was, but maybe. Well, but even like like she was trained in the U.S. And here's the problem. United States birthing methodologies. Yeah. From what I've heard, not experienced, but heard and read and looked at and everything, like, they suck. Yeah. We have ridiculous rates of death from giving birth. And it's... It's just bleh. Yeah. So, yeah, I think uh, we've got a, a pretty solid understanding of the, uh, no, I'm going to call it a hellhole. Um, Hell, hellhole seems yeah, appropriate. Or shithole. Um, where, these, where these people were living. And I don't know, like, I understand the cult mentality but it still amazes me that people were willingly living there. <sighs> it's all about branding and marketing. Yeah, well, I'm not cut out for the cult life. The cult life is not for me. No, but see, you probably don't notice how bad it is until you get there. Like, you don't see the torture hole in the pamphlet. True, true. I... <laughs> or if you did, you're real fucked up. So, remember Tim Stone? Yes, our buddy Tim Stone. Yep, he was a defector, and in September of 1977, former Temple members uh, Tim and Grace Stone battled in a Georgetown court, or Georgetown is the capital there, mm -hmm. uh, to produce a order for the Temple to show, uh, show cause why a final order should not be issued to return their five-year-old son, John. Okay, so custody battle. Yeah, the Temple kept their kid. That's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. So a few days after the court battle took place, a second order was issued for John to be taken into protective custody by authorities. And for fear of being held in contempt of these orders, I, I don't know if that's the right word, but I couldn't think of a bun. Um, that fear of being in contempt, inspired Jones to set up a false sniper attack upon himself. <gasps> yeah, a little bit of a drama queen there. <laughs> oh my god, dude. Yeah. Chill out. You already have cameras on you. Yeah. Well, this, um, this kind of kicked off the first of his series of White Knights, which we'll get into what they are. Um, but this first one was called the Six-Day Siege. So during this siege, Jones spoke to temple members about attacks from outsiders and had them surround Jonestown with guns and machetes. The rallies took an almost surreal tone as African activists Angela Davis and Huey Newton, uh, they communicated their radio telephone to the Jonestown crowd, urging them to hold strong against the conspiracy. Jones made radio broadcasts stating, we will die unless we are granted freedom from harassment and asylum. Uh, Deputy Minister Reed finally assured Marceline Jones that the Guyana Defense Force would not invade Jonestown. Dear goodness. Yep. So, we're going to circle back the White Knights. And it is nights like nighttime, not like night in shining okay. armor. Uh, so, Jones would pretty frequently address the temple members regarding Jonestown's safety, including statements that the CIA and other intelligence agencies were conspiring with capitalist pigs to destroy the settlement, 
and harm its inhabitants. I can feel the eye rolls from here. (laughs) 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 Yeah, just... Anytime someone starts saying the something pigs, like, hey, get over yourself. Yeah. Because, no. So after work, when purported emergencies arose, the temple sometimes conducted what Jones referred to as white nights. So during these events, Jones would pretty much give the, or occasionally he would give Jonestown members four options. Attempt to flee to the Soviet Union, again, really loved Russia, uh, to commit revolutionary suicide, stay in Jonestown and fight the attackers, or to flee into the jungle. So those were those were his four options that he would give people. And was this just like, like there was actually an enemy of some kind that they felt like they were being attacked, or was it just him making sure? Oh, six of one. I mean... I'm sure that there there were some real enemies, but pretty sure it was mostly in his head. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, and I would like to take this moment to talk about our sponsors, every mental health institution and practitioner yeah, ever. Use them. Use them. So, as I said in the start, Jones was known to pretty regularly study Hitler and... Father Divine. I didn't look up who that was. Um, Basically, he studied them to learn how to manipulate members of a cult to, quote, find an enemy and to make sure they'll know they know who the enemy is, as it will unify those in the group and make them subservient to him. Great. Yep. That's. Yeah. So remember those four options? So they would actually vote. Uh Uh-huh. So, yeah, they would have a, a oh dear God communal wide vote. So again, those were flee to Soviet Union, commit revolutionary suicide, stay in Jonestown and fight the supposed attackers, or flee in the jungle. So on at least two occasions during these white nights, after a revolutionary suicide vote was reached, a simula- simulated mass suicide was rehearsed. Oh. Yeah, they they actually rehearsed it, which somehow makes it so much worse. It really yeah. does. Like, well, okay, <laughs> I'm sure it gets worse. I was just gonna say I'm gonna make it worse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so one of the temple defectors, Deborah Layton, uh, which you'll recognize the last name later too, in one of the FBI affidavits, uh, she said. Quote, everyone, including the children, was told to line up. As we passed through the line, we were given a small glass of red liquid to drink. We were told that the liquid contained poison and that we would die within 45 minutes. Also, 45 minutes is so long to wait. Ugh. We all did as we were told. When the time came when we should have dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real and that we had just been through a loyalty test. He warned us that the time was not far off when it would become necessary for us to die by our own hands. Dude, you messed up. Yeah. There is something wrong in your head, and just let everyone go. Mm-hmm. Don't hold your 900 hostages there, dear goodness. Yeah. Just because you can't sleep at night. Right. <laughs> um, 
So, in a little factoid that isn't at all suspicious, the the temple was receiving monthly half-pound shipments of cyanide, and they had been since 1976. Uh, (gasps) Yeah, Jones had obtained a jeweler's license to buy the chemical. Uh, He said to clean gold was his reasoning as to why he needed it. Uh, But in May of 1978, a temple doctor, I guess they did have doctors for what it counts, uh, wrote a memo to Jones asking permission to test cyanide on Jonestown's pigs as their metabolism was close to that of humans. They had so much cyanide. So much cyanide. Like, a lot of it. Also, even for cleaning gold, you don't need that much cyanide, I bet you anything. No, unless it's literally a mountain of it. I feel like that's a Google search I shouldn't do. <laughs> it's not a Google search I'm no. going to do. I normally would, but nope. nah. So, yeah, after the six-day siege, Jones... Uh, no longer believed that the Guyanese government could be trusted, which classic paranoia mentality. Uh, he would instruct members to write dozens of letters to foreign governments regarding their immigration policies. Uh, the members would contact Soviet Union, North Korea, Yugoslavia, and Cuba. And while Jones and the temple directors were initially in favor of an exodus to the Soviet Union... Again, we get to love them. Uh, but Jones ultimately did veto to stay in Guyana because of the sovereignty it allowed them. Does it really count as a vote if he has a veto? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't remember. Think it does. He wants everyone to be able to vote equally, but he still gets the final word. <sighs> okay, there, Dad. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um,. So pretty much all of this is happening between 1977 and 1978. So we're just gonna assume that a lot can happen in those two years, as this last seven months has proven a lot can happen in a year. Um, yeah. Yeah. So in late 1977, early 78, Tim and Grace Stone participated in meetings with other relatives of Jonestown residents at the home of uh, Jeannie Jeannie Mills, uh, who was another temple defector. Together, they called themselves the Concerned Relatives, which, yeah. So Tim would engage in letter-writing campaigns to the U.S. Secretary of State and the Guyanese government and would travel to Washington, D.C. in an attempt to begin an investigation. Uh, in January of 78, Stone wrote a white paper to Congress, and I looked that up. It's basically just an authoritative report or guide that informs readers concisely about a complex issue and presents the issuing body's philosophy on the matter. So basically it just says, hey, this is what's going on. Um, but he wrote that to Congress, and it detailed all of his grievances and requested that congressmen write to Prime Minister Burnham and actually 91 congressmen wrote letters, including Congressman Leo Ryan. And it's the involvement of Mr. Ryan is where things really started to go downhill for Jonestown. Like I said, I'll, I'll link the FBI on class files for anyone who wants to read through them. And you really should because, like, they've got so many handwritten letters in there and 
It's 68 pages of investigation and documentation. It's a lot. Yeah. So by this point, there were believed to be between 12 and 1,500 active members of the temple split between Guyana and the U.S. More of them were in Guyana than there were in the U.S. But that's a lot of people. Yeah. So February 17th, 1978, Jones submitted to an interview with San Francisco Examiner reporter Tim Reiterman. Uh, Reiterman's subsequent story about the stone custody battle prompted the immediate threat of a lawsuit by the temple. The repercussions were devastating for the reputation of the temple and made most former supportive supporters more suspicious of the temple claim that it was a victim of the rightist vendetta. Still others remain loyal. On the day after Reiterman's article was published, Harvey Milk, who was a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, uh, which was supported by the temple, wrote a letter to President Jimmy Carter defending Jones as a man of the highest character and stating that temple defectors were trying to damage Reverend Jones' reputation with apparent bold-faced lies. Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk? Oh, that's sad. Uh-huh. Apparently he... So I just Googled him, of course, but apparently he was the first oh. openly gay elected official in the history of California. And at such an early time, that is yeah. sucktastic that. that he went and defended Joe's town. It could be incorrect. It was on yeah, Wikipedia, most, and you know that people can edit that. I was going to say, I got most of my stuff off of Wikipedia and the FBI. Also, and Wikipedia had... They did. So... Yeah. And they match to a concerning amount. <laughs> so, yeah. April 11th, 1978, the oh, concerned dear. relatives distributed a packet of documents, including letters and affidavits that they titled An Accusation of Human Rights Violations by Reverend James Warren Jones to the People's Temple members of the press and members of Congress. So pulling out the big guns. And in June, Leighton provided the group with a further affidavit detailing alleged crimes by the temple and substandard living conditions in Jonestown, which they were. Uh, Tim Stone represented three members of the concerned relatives in lawsuits filed in May and June against Jones and other temple members seeking in excess of $56 million in damages. The temple was represented by Charles Gary, and they filed a suit against Stone on July 10th of 78, seeking $150 million in damages. Big money. <laughs> yeah. So, who is it? You'll want to remember Gary and Lane. They come up later. So, during the summer of 78, Jones sought the legal services of Mark Lane and Donald Freed, both Kennedy assassination conspiracy theorists, to help make a case of grand conspiracy by U.S. intelligence agencies against the temple. Oh, for the love of goodness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Jones told Lane he wanted to quote Eldridge Cleaver, which if you don't know who that is, he was an early leader for the Black Panther Party. Um, yeah. You do not get to compare yourself to them, Jones. <laughs> Very yeah, different situation. And... Yep. And he wanted to return to the U.S. after repairing his reputation. Uh, in September, Lane spoke to the residents of Jonestown, providing support for Jones's theories and comparing him to Martin Luther King Jr. 
Lane then held press conferences stating that, quote, none of the charges against the temple are accurate or true, and that there was a massive conspiracy against the temple by intelligence organizations, naming the CIA and even the U.S. Post Office. Uh, oh, for the... <sighs> I can only say for the love of goodness so many times. <laughs> yep. Though Lane represented himself as a disinterested party, uh, shocker, Jones was actually paying him six grand a month to generate these theories. Like, I can think of some pretty wild Dude, shit. not enough. Like, I'll, I'll come up with conspiracy theories all day long that don't make sense if you want to pay me six grand a month for it. <laughs> I'd be down if it didn't actually result in the harm of humans. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Oh, gosh. But otherwise, I'll take, I'll take six yeah. grand a month. How much was that? Okay, I have to convert it again. I we must know. not, evidently. This is, what, 1978 now? Yep. Ooh, $23,000 a month. Yeah, I'll take that. Yep. All right, lots of weird stories. I can come up with shit. Yeah, no kidding. Again, yeah. so long as no one's getting hurt. <laughs> we have standards. So. Yep. Ugh. Unlike. So, yeah, Leo Ryan who represented California's 11th Congressional District, announced that he would plan to visit Jonestown. Again, once once Ryan gets involved, things really start going downhill. Um, he was friends with the father of Bob Houston, who was a temple member in California, whose mutilated body was found near train tracks on October 5th of 1976, three days after a taped telephone conversation with Houston's ex-wife, in which they discuss leaving the temple. <gasps> yeah. So over the following months, Ryan's interest was furthered by the allegations put forth by Stone and the rest of the concerned relatives. Um, the allegations were pretty serious. Jonestown was sounding more like a slave, ca slave camp than a religious center, and there was talk of beatings, forced labor, and use of drugs to control behavior, suspicious deaths, and rehearsals for mass suicide. So he decided it was it was time to go take a look. And on November 14th of 78, Ryan flew to Jonestown along with a delegation. A few days later, they arrived in Jonestown along with various government officials and a group of reporters. Ryan met with Jones and interviewed most of his followers, but uh, not surprisingly, uh, some of them asked to leave with him and others apparently left on foot on their own. When they're running away. Uh, yeah. So, jo <laughs> yeah, Jones, Jones was not happy about this. Uh, da, da, da. And so I've got a, a list of the people who went with him there. So the delegation included Jackie Spear, who was his, at the time, legal advisor. She did survive. Hell yeah. What happens Good later, which... Surprising. Uh, Neville Anaborn, who represented Guyana's Ministry of Information. Richard Dwyer, Deputy Chief of Mission of the U.S. Embassy to Guyana. The San Francisco Examiner reporter Tim Reiterman. Examiner photographer Greg Robinson. NBC reporter Don Harris. Camera operator Bob Brown. Audio tech Steve Sung. And producer Bob Flick. Then they had... The Washington Post reporter Charles Krauss, San Francisco Chronicle reporter Ron. Mm, I like Javier. that name. 
J-A-V-E-R-S. And then the concerned relatives included Tim and Grace Stone, Steve and Anthony Katsaris, which that's a name that'll pop up again, uh, Beverly Oliver, Jim Cobb, Sherwin Harris, and Caroline Houston Boyd. So quite, quite the group. When Ryan and his delegation arrived in Guyana, they were initially refused access to Jonestown. Uh, Jones did not want them to be there at all. But by the morning of November 17th, Jones was pretty much told by his men that Ryan's party would be leaving to come to Jonestown that afternoon, regardless of if he wanted him there or not. Um, yeah. So due to aircraft seating limitations at the time, only four of the relatives were able to join Ryan and his delegation on the flight. I think it could fit like 19 people on board. So they all didn't get to go. Uh, Uh, When they arrived, Jones only allowed Ryan and three others into the town after sunset, which is real creepy to me. But they went... Uh, That night, they attended a musical reception in the settlement's main pavilion, and while the party was received warmly, Jones said that he felt like a dying man and ranted about government conspiracies and martyrdom as he attacks by the press and his enemies. (sighs) It was later reported and verified by audio tapes recovered by investigators that Jones had run rehearsals on how to convince Ryan that everyone was happy and in good spirits. Dude. Yeah. It's it will always amaze me how people like that continue to exist regardless of belief system or like political religious caste any of it. Like they they just keep on going. Uh-huh. Well, uh it didn't go for long. So this, we are quickly approaching the shitstorm end point here. Yeah, the eye of the shitstorm. Uh, it didn't. It did not take long for people to start trying to defect. Uh, same night, actually, uh, two members, Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, were the two who made the move. Gosney mistook Don Harris, the NBC reporter, for Ryan, and passed him a note that read, "Dear Congressman." Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, please help us get out of Jonestown. And in a in a true snitches stitches, uh, <gasps> a kid saw Gosney pass the note and verbally alerted other temple members. Like, dude, what a little shit. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's kind of unfortunate because like you can't really blame them too much because that's what they were raised in. Right. They think that's the right thing. Yeah. It's so messed up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he he snitched on it. And Harris would actually end up bringing two notes to Ryan and Spear. And Spear said later in 2006 that in reading the two notes, it was enough to convince her and Ryan that something was very, very wrong in Jonestown. I don't know what the second note said, but... Clearly, it was enough to to further that. Something. Com- yeah. Yeah, something compelling. Yeah. So it was Ryan, Spear, Dwyer, and Annaborn who stayed night in Jonestown. Those were the four people who were allowed to stay. Uh, while other members of the delegation, the press and members of the relatives, were forced to go back to the Port Katuma, 
um, area where they spent the night in a cafe. I mean, I'd rather be there than Jonestown. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so by the next morning, it's November 18th, 11 members walked out of Jonestown. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of them included the head of security, Joe Wilson, and his family. Pretty Dang. bad when your head of security leaves. Freaking kudos, dude. <laughs> yeah. So when the press and the relatives portion of the delegation returned to Jonestown, Marceline Jones gave them a tour of the settlement. Uh, that afternoon, the Parks and Bogue families, along with in-laws Christopher O'Neill and Harold Cordell, stepped forward and asked to be escorted out of Jonestown by the Ryan delegation. When Jones's adopted son Johnny attempted to talk to Jerry Park or attempted to talk Jerry Parks out of leaving, Parks told him, "No way! It's nothing but a communist prison camp." Jones gave the two families, along with Gosney and Bagby, permission to leave. When Harris handed Gosney's note to Jones during an interview in the pavilion, Jones stated that the defectors were lying and wanted to destroy Jonestown. Well, they're not lying, but they do want to destroy it. <laughs> they they do. Um. So yeah, all this was going on, and pretty much out of nowhere, I assume it's because they're in a jungly area, a very violent rainstorm just started up. Um, so during this, Al Simon, who was a Native American temple member, attempted to take two of his children to Ryan to process the requisite paperwork for transfer back to the U.S. His wife, Bonnie, summoned on the loudspeaker by temple staff, loudly denounced him, even though he pleaded with her to return to the U.S. with him, uh, she rejected it. So, oh. yep. He did the right thing for him and his kids, though. He did. He did. And it was very, very quickly the correct decision, although I don't remember if they survived. Um, mm. So after all of this, we'll find out together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's Adventure! a bad one. Uh, so after all of this, most of the delegation and defectors headed back to the Port Kaituma airstrip. Ryan and Dwyer stayed behind a little longer in Jonestown in order to accept any others who wanted to defect and process their paperwork. Uh, right before the dump truck, they, they went to the airstrip on a dump truck. A temple member by the name of Larry Layton, who was the brother of Deborah Layton, demanded to join them. And unsurprisingly, there were quite a few who voiced their discomfort and suspicion about the motives behind him joining them. Uh, so shortly after the dump truck did, Don Sly grabbed Ryan while wielding a knife. Uh, Ryan was unhurt after he was wrestled to the ground, but Dwyer strongly suggested that the congressman leave Jonestown while he filed a criminal complaint against Sly. Uh, Ryan did decided to leave, and he promised to return later to address the dispute. Uh, the truck that had left to go to the airstrip had stopped after passengers heard the attack on Ryan and went back to get him and continued on their journey to the airstrip. Uh, da -da. So before he left to go back to the planes, Ryan told Gary, um, and I've already forgotten who Gary was. Charles Gary. Yes. Was lawyer? I think? I think so. Um, that would make sense. But so he told he told Gary he would issue a report that would describe Jonestown in 
basically good terms. Ryan stated that none of the 60 relatives he had targeted for interviews wanted to leave. The 14 defectors constituted a very small portion of Jonestown residents, and that any sense of imprisonment the defectors had was likely because of peer pressure and lack of physical transportation. And even if 200, 900 plus wanted to leave, quote, I'd still say you have a base here. Ugh. Um, so despite Gary's report of Ryan's, Ryan's words, Jones told him, I have failed. Gary reiterated that Ryan would be making basically a positive report, and Jones just maintained that all is lost. Hmm. Yup. Mental health spirals are dangerous. Yeah, yeah, they are. So the delegation was originally scheduled to fly out on a 19-seater Twin Otter from Guyana Airways to fly them back to Georgetown. But because of the uh, number of members that wanted to defect, they needed a second plane. Uh, the U.S. Embassy did arrange for a six-passenger Cessna, but by the time the group all arrived at the airstrip, um, the planes hadn't yet got there. This was at about 4.30, give or take. Mm -hmm. um, by 5.10, both of them had arrived, and they were able to start boarding. And this is when things take another turn for the worse. So, Leighton, he was on the smaller of the two, the Cessna, and that was the first aircraft that was set up to take off. After the Cessna had taxied to the far end of the airstrip, he pulled out a handgun and started shooting at the passengers. Of course he did. Of course he did. He wounded Bagby and Gosney, who disarmed him. And then we're on board the, the larger of the two, the Twin Otter now. Uh, some passengers had started to board it when a tractor with a trailer attached driven by members of the Temple's Red Brigade, the security squad, arrived at the airstrip and approached the plane. When the tractor neared within approximately 30 feet of the aircraft, uh, the Red Brigade, or at roughly the same time as the shooting Cessna, the Red Brigade opened fire with shotguns, handguns, and rifles, while at least two shooters circled the plane on foot. There were... Dear God. Yeah. There were about nine shooters whose identities are not totally known, but most of the sources agreed that it was Joe Wilson... Uh, Thomas Kais Sr. and Ronnie Dennis were among them. So, I know Joe Wilson was the head of security, but I'm thinking maybe he didn't really defect and he was just heading towards the airstrip to, I guess, lay in wait. I don't, I don't know. It was weird. Or he saw the people coming and changed his plan to join them to try and not get killed. That could be it, too. Either way, yeah, there's there's quite a few sources that said he was part of it. Ugh. So the first seconds of the shootings were actually captured as a ENG video recording by NBC cameraman Bob Brown. Bob was killed along with Robinson, Harris, and Patricia Parks, who was one of the defectors, in the first minutes of shooting. Congressman Ryan was killed after being shot more than 20 times. Jackie Spear, Sung, Dwyer, Reiterman, and Anthony Katsaris were among the nine injured in and around the Twin Otter. After the shootings, the Cessna's pilot, along with the pilot 
and co-pilot of the Twin Otter, fled in the Cessna to Georgetown. The damaged Twin Otter and the injured Ryan delegation members were left behind on the Earth. Yeah. So, after Ryan's departure from Jonestown towards the airstrip, Marceline Jones made an, a broadcast on the PA system, stating that everything was all right and asked residents to return to their homes, which, if that doesn't sound like something Big Brother would say, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what does. Uh, Just, it's fine. Don't look at the bloody carcasses. We're good. Yeah, well... Well, no, the airstrip was six miles away. They wouldn't have seen it. Um, Still. But, yeah. Um, during this time, when they were all asked to go back to their homes, uh, the temple aides had begun to prepare a large tub with grape flavor aid. It wasn't Kool-Aid. It was flavor aid, which I assume was just an... Okay, that's even worse. Like, they skipped I assume out. it was just like knockoff Kool-Aid. Um, which I can't yeah. imagine they stayed in business after this, but who knows? Um, but yeah, it was grape flavor aid that was poisoned with Valium, chloral hydrate, cyanide, and I'm going to screw this up. Phenargan? Phenargan? I'm going That's, with Phenargan. I have no idea. It sounds like a made up thing anyway, but yeah. But... So yeah, they started mixing their their flavor aid, and about thirty minutes after Marceline had made the announcement, Jim Jones made his own. He called all members immediately to the pavilion. Um, so that evening, after Ryan and his delegation left, Jones gathered the remaining members of the temple, and this is it's a forty-five minute audio recording. So we're just gonna listen to it. A couple minutes of it. And if you want to listen to it, I will include a link. Okay. How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. But in spite of all of that I've tried, a handful of our people with their lives have made our life impossible. There's no way to detach ourselves from what's happened today. Not only we're in a compound situation, not only are there those who have left and committed the betrayal of the century, some have stolen children from others and they're in pursuit right now to kill them because they stole their children. And we, we are sitting here waiting on a powder keg. I don't think this is what we want to do with our babies. I don't think that's what we had in mind to do with our babies. It was said by the greatest of prophets from time immemorial. No man lay, takes my life from me. I lay my life down. So to, to sit here and wait for the catastrophe that's going to happen on that airplane, it's going to be a catastrophe. It almost happened here almost happened. The congressman was nearly killed here. But you can't steal people's children. You can't take off with people's children without expecting a violent reaction. And that's not so unfamiliar to us either. If we, Even if we were Judeo-Christian, if we weren't communists, 
world, the kingdom toughest violence, and the violence shall take it by force. If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. We've been so betrayed. We have been so terribly betrayed. But we tried, and as Jack Beam often said, I don't know where he's at right this moment, where's Jack? He said, if this only worked one day, it was worthwhile. So, yeah, I'll cut it off there. Um, yeah, so that is um, what is known as the death tape. So it is 45 minutes long, and it is basically the entire recording of the drink the Kool-Aid thing. That is so creepy. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um... The Red Brigade members came back to Jonestown after Ryan's murder, and Tim Carter, who was a Vietnam War veteran, recalled them having the thousand-yard stick that you would see on exhausted soldiers' faces. Uh, after Jones confirmed that the congressman's dead, no dissent is heard on the death tape. By this point, armed guards had taken up positions surrounding the pavilion area, and directly after this, Jones stated that Quote, the Red Brigade's the only one that made any sense anyway, and the Red Brigade showed them justice. Um, in addition to his, several other Temple members' speeches that praised Jones and his decision for the community to commit suicide, even after Jones stopped appreciating this praise and begged for the process to go faster. According to escaped Temple member Adele Rhodes, the first one to take the poison were Rouletta Paul and her one-year-old infant. A syringe without a needle fitted was used to squirt the poison into the infant's mouth, after which Paul squirted another into her own. Stanley Clayton also witnessed mothers with their babies first approach the tub containing the poison. Clayton said that Jones approached people to encourage them to drink the poison, and that after adults saw the poison begin to take effect, Shocker, they showed a reluctance to die. The poison caused death within five minutes for children, less for babies, and around 20 to 30 minutes for adults. After consuming the poison, according to Rhodes, people were then escorted down a wooden walkway in, leading outside the pavilion. It was not clear if some initially thought the exercise was another white night rehearsal or not, um, but Rhodes reported being in close contact with dying children. Uh, in response to seeing reactions from others uh, of the poison taking effect, Jones counseled, Die with a degree of dignity. Lay down your life with dignity. Don't lay down tears in agony. Uh, he also said, quote, I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear. I don't care how many anguish cries. Death is a million times preferable to ten more days of life. If you knew what was ahead of you, if you knew what was ahead of you, you'd be glad to be stepping over tonight. Dude, what's ahead of them was freaking life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, Rhodes described a scene of both hysteria and confusion as parents watched their children die from the poison. He also stated that most present quietly waited for their own turn to die, and many of the assembled temple members walked around like they were in a trance. 
The crowd was surrounded by guards, offering members the basic dilemma of death by poison or death by the guards' hands. Cries and screams of children and adults were easily heard on the tape recording made. So, trigger warning for if you listen to the whole thing. Um, as more temple members died, eventually the guards themselves were called in to take their poison. Jones was found dead lying next to his chair in the pavilion between two other bodies, his head cushioned by a pillow. His death was caused by a gunshot wound to his right temple that Guyanese chief medical examiner Leslie Mutu stated was consistent with being self-inflicted. Which, that's shitty. You're going to make your people die by poisoning, and you don't even have the guts to do it yourself. Like, yeah. So Marceline Jones left behind a handwritten witness note. It was witnessed by Moore and Maria Katsaris that said, I am Marceline Jones. Leave all bank assets in my name to the Communist Party of the USSR. The above bank accounts are located in the Bank of Nova Scotia in Nassau, Bahama. Please be sure these assets do get to the USSR. I especially request that none of these are allowed to get into the hands of my adopted daughter, Suzanne Jones Cartmel. For anyone who finds this letter, please honest this request, honor this request as it is most important to myself and my husband, James W. Jones. So, I should say that Jones and his wife had four adopted children, one of which was Suzanne, and obviously it didn't go well with their parting because she was not there. I went well for Suzanne. Um, yeah, Suzanne was lucky there. Do-do-do. Um... So, not only did this happen at Jonestown, but temple members oh. all over. Yeah. So, in the early evening of November 18th at the temple headquarter in Georgetown, temple member Sharon Amos received a radio communication from Jonestown instructing the members at headquarters to take revenge on the temple's enemies and commit revolutionary suicide. Later, after police arrived at the headquarters... Sharon escorted her children, Leanne, 21, Krista, 11, and Martin, 10, into a bathroom. Wielding a kitchen knife, Sharon first killed Krista, then Martin. Then Leanne assisted Sharon in killing herself with a knife, after which Leanne turned in on herself. The fuck is wrong with these people? Well, they're in a cult. Yeah, but... <laughs> There's not a whole lot of logic. It's, <sighs> again, these people were massively brainwashed and, yeah. So, back at the airstrip, Reiterman photographed the aftermath of the shootings. Dwyer assumed leadership at the scene, and at his recommendation, Larry Layton was arrested by police. Dwyer was grazed by a bullet in his butt during the shootings, and it took several hours before the 11 wounded and others in their party gathered themselves together. Most of them would spend the night in the Port Katuma cafe that they had stayed in previously, and the more seriously wounded slept in a small tent in the airstrip. Uh, the Guyanese government plane arrived the following morning to evacuate the wounded. Five teenage members of the Parks and Bogue family, with one boyfriend, followed the instructions of defector Gerald Parks to hide in the adjacent jungle until help arrived and their safety was assured. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. Um, 
could, but um, they weren't real familiar with the jungle. Oh, no. So they they ended up getting lost for three days and nearly dying before Guyanese soldiers eventually rescued them. But they did live. They did live. That's good. Yes. That's good. Um, okay. Yeah. We we do have some some bright spots. Um, so after escaping Jonestown, Rhodes, who had spoken about previously, um, she or, or he arrived in Port Kaituma on the night of November 18th. And that night, so that night, Clayton, who was another temple member, stayed with a local Guyanese family and traveled to Port Kaituma the next morning. Prokes and the Carter brothers were put into protective custody in uh, Port Kaituma as well. They were later leased in Georgetown, and Rhodes, Clayton, Lane were also brought to Georgetown. Prokes died by suicide on March 14, 1979, during a press conference four months after the Jonestown incident. So, all in all, 912 of the 918 dead, including Jones himself, were collected by the U.S. military in Guyana and transported by military cargo plane over Air Force Base in Delaware, a location that had been used previously for processing of the dead from the Tenerife, T-E-N-E-R-I-F-E, um, airport disaster. The last ship... Um, a shipment of bodies arrived early in the morning of November 27, 1978. The base's mortuary was tasked with fingerprinting, identifying, and processing them. The base's resources were pretty understandably uh, overwhelmed, which, again, does not surprise me. Uh, in most cases, responsibility for cremation of the remains did to Dover area funeral homes, and in August of 2014, is much more recent than I expected. Um, the yeah, that seems crazy recent. Yeah, the unclaimed remains of nine people from Jonestown were found in a former funeral home in Dover. Oh. Yeah. So as of September in 2014, four of them were returned to Next of Kin, and the remaining five have not. Those five were publicly identified in the hope that family would claim their remains. <sighs> I promise, we're almost done. Um, so Larry, people, uh, yeah, it's, it gets real depressing real fast. So Larry Layton, who hired the gun at the people on the Cessna, he was initially found not guilty of attempted murder, uh, in Guyanese court. What? Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry. Um, they employed the defense that he was brainwashed, which I don't disagree with, uh, but acquittal in their courts did not free Leighton, who was promptly deported back to the U.S. and arrested by U.S. Marshals upon arrival in San Francisco. He, yeah, he Good. could not be tried in the U.S. for the attempted murder of Gosney, Bagby, or Dale, or Dale Parks and the Cessna pilot on Guyanese soil, and was instead tried under a federal statute of assassinating members of Congress and internationally people which was Ryan and Dwyer. Uh, he was convicted of conspiracy and of aiding and abetting the murder of Ryan, the attempted murder of Dwyer. He was paroled in 2002, and he was the only person ever to have been held criminally responsible for the events of Jonestown. The only person held responsible. Wow. <sighs> well, I mean, everyone else was kind of dead. Yeah. Unfortunately. Like, I just... 
I can only imagine how many sentences would have been leveled against Jones if he had survived. Oh, so, so freaking many, I so would hope. Many. And rightfully, though. Absolutely. He was the freaking marionette puppeteer dude pulling all the strings. Yep. I just, it's... Did I... You know that there's something twisted. I was going to say, did I warn you this was going to be a downer? <laughs> you did. You did warn me. <laughs> um, but you know there's something twisted in the brain, like, when your concept of what will get revenge on someone is killing your entire movement. Yeah. Like, you believed in it so little past your own personal preferences that you decided to wipe it out. And guess what? Uh, a religion and belief system and lifestyle, whatever you want to call it, that results in the death of every, like, as many members as possible, not going to get picked up by well, other people. You sure? Does it still exist? No, but... Um... Oh, thank God. What's interesting is, like, they keep saying socialism, but it sounds like communism. They were. They were mostly communists. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure where they're really getting the socialism bit, but they were communist. So the bodies of over 400 of those who died are buried in a grave at Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland, California. In 2011, a memorial to them was erected at the cemetery. Uh, so uh, I did have a note that said, although Jones used poison flavor aid, the drink was also commonly referred to as Kool-Aid, which led to the, the phrase of drinking the Kool-Aid. I mean, probably the most common use that I've run into is that people use it to say buy-in to company um, ideologies. So, like, when you join a company and you watch all the training videos, like, that's called, quote-unquote, drinking the Kool-Aid. Also, I looked it up. Flavor-Aid is still available for sale. It is, and I'm amazed. I am super surprised that it is still in production do they still sell grape i think so that's just terrible that's look yep they still smell they still smell they still sell grape they have grape mixed huh. berry which looks like raspberry and blueberry cherry lemon lime tropical punch and strawberry though it is out of stock on amazon I haven't been able to find anything, huh. like, online about, like, the company or who owns it or anything. So maybe it's gone out of business since, but it's still listed. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's Jonestown. That is all about the People's Temple. And, oh, I didn't look up any fun facts yet. <laughs> fun facts! We have fun facts. Let's lighten the mood. <laughs> puns. I like puns. Let's look up puns. Yeah, it sounds puns, good. Puns, 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 puns. It's a, a very puns weird time. transition, but I want pizza. What? <laughs> I really want pizza. I was just, I told Rory to preheat the oven, either for french fries or pizza. <laughs> yes. It's, this is sad, given what we just talked about. I want to be cremated as it is my last hope for a smoking hot body. Oh, my God. Okay, <laughs> uh, uh. so I know it's Flavor-Aid, but I never could stand the Kool-Aid man. 
He was always so full of himself. And he broke through walls. What a dick. <laughs> he made so much property damage. Caused, made, uh, and works. So, so much. Rude. <laughs> uh, guys, this is just us attempting oh. to lighten the mood. Oh, I have a bad one. Do it. I think Kool-Aid should make a Jonestown Memorial flavor. Oh. But it wouldn't be very tasteful. Oh, God. That's terrible. I I told you it was bad. Yeah, but I thought you meant just, like, bad in the, in no. the usual sense. No, not... like, bad, bad, Ugh. bad, 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 bad. Someone wrote that. Bad. I didn't write it. It was just on the internet. Oh, what's the difference between a religion and a cult? What? Religion drinks wine and a cult drinks Kool-Aid. Oh my god, you are finding all the Kool-Aid ones. Flavor-Aid. I I just, I found a list that's all Kool-Aid ones. Some of them, like, you have to click in and say, yes, I'm over 18. Not a good sign. Because they might contain profanity. And some yeah, of them are really racist, me. and I'm ignoring those ones. Like, they are massively racist. Um, and whoever wrote those, shame on you. What's uh, the Kool-Aid band's favorite sport? What? Oh, okay. Baseball. He's a pitcher. <laughs> okay, I'll stop the Kool-Aid ones, because that's, like, the only one that wasn't depressing of the last three. Uh, I don't know. Now I'm looking it up. <laughs> uh, I had to water the Kool-Aid down It was really strong And someone goes Oh, was it running or lifting weights? <laughs> oh. oh Oh Do we want to get political here? More so than we normally are? Oh Hang on, okay. I got one more why is the Kool-Aid man red instead of purple? Oh, why? I get where they're going from, but after we said it was grape powder, it makes me sad. Because grape, with a great power comes great responsibility. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, here's the problem. That just sounds like they're putting cyanide in the grape flavor. Well, I mean, someone did. So uh, do you know what Donald Trump and the Kool-Aid man have in common? No. They're both loud, artificially colored, and obsessed with walls. That was actually really funny. (laughs) 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 Oh, goodness. Oh, Oh, God damn it. Why can't a blonde make Kool-Aid? She can't fit the two cups of water into the tiny packet. Rude. I am offended as a blonde. (laughs) I could make them fit. I am too. (laughs) Uh, What's the Kool-Aid man's favorite type of bar? A hole in the wall. Oh, yeah. Oh, jeez. Oh, no. How did this just turn into Kool-Aid puns? I mean, because they're fun. Jones Soda. (gasps) Jones Soda is good, but have you ever tried their Kool-Aid? Oh, no! Ugh. Oh, my God! Who, who writes these? I I think I'm on the Ugh. same one as you right now, because I just be. saw that one. The jokojokes.com. Ugh. Yeah. Yep. 
Oh no. That, okay, this is horrifying. Who do you not want to see with a tampon? Yes, I was reading that one! <laughs> Listeners, it's the Kool-Aid man. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Man, these are all so terrible. Okay, I'm shutting mine down. Yep. Uh, so yeah, that was that was Jonestown and our our terrible series of Kool Aid puns that we didn't really intend to start on, and I'm we sorry. did because <laughs> people are terrible and they came up with a lot of Kool Aid puns, which it was Flavor Aid, but we'll ignore that for now. But yeah, sorry for the downer. Check out the FBI links. They're nifty and sad. So yeah, Lauren will be back next week with her story. In the meantime, check out our other episodes if you haven't listened to them, and we'll see you next Sunday. Make good choices, and remember, wait Wait to to panic. panic.